brought to you by dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. Welcome to the Dementia Podcast, bringing together uh, early re- career researchers and leaders from the field to discuss uh, their research, our hot topics and share tips about uh, careers and uh, career progression. My name is Nicholas Ashton, uh, I'm from the University of Gothenburg and it's my pleasure to be guest hosting this uh, exciting podcast about biomarkers. Um, and we will mainly be discussing about blood biomarkers today and uh, their incredible advancement in the last few years. Um, so let's meet our guests. So we have two, I would say, of the experts around the, in the world of uh, biomarkers, not just fluid biomarkers, but also imaging as well. Uh, so we have Professor uh, Oscar Hansen, a professor of neurology at London University and the PI of the BioFinder study. And we have Professor Henrik Zetterberg, who's a professor of neurochemistry in Gothenburg and several places around the world, uh, spanning many continents. So it's a pleasure to have you both here. Um, thanks for accepting the task of uh, putting up with me as a host. This is the first time I've ever hosted anything in my life, so we'll see <laughs> how it goes. Um, so for many people that, uh, or many people do know you guys, but uh, for those that maybe don't, Oscar, do you just want to explain in a nutshell your work and uh, your research? Yes, yeah, sure, sure. So as I said, I'm a professor of neurology, uh, always been very interested in neurogenitive disorders, started out with Huntington and Parkinson's diseases, uh, but then got more and more interested in Alzheimer's disease. And just as you said, I've been working quite a lot with fluid biomarkers together with Henrik and, and Kai and so on, uh, but also MRI and PET imaging, especially in the last uh, 10 years. So um, yeah, I guess that in short is me. And Henrik? Yes, I am. I started in this uh, research world uh, more, uh, 20 years ago now. And my clinical training is a clinical, as a clinical chemist. So I am a laboratory specialist. That's my sort of uh, medical speciality. And when I did my, my um, residency in clinical chemistry, I got to meet Kai Blenov, who came. Um, he's, he was also working as a clinical chemist here in Gothenburg. And he came to our research group to learn how to clone genes. I did studies in molecular biology, uh, more specifically how Epstein-Barr virus can transform um, lymphocytes into cancer cells. And uh, then Kai came to our research group to learn how to clone genes, and we started to discuss uh, clinical chemistry. And the fascinating thing for me when I spoke with Kai was that uh, in clinical chemistry, as a clinical speciality, we were, we, I mean, we have liver tests and car- uh, cardiac markers and kidney markers and so, but then uh, uh, we didn't have very good markers for brain diseases in biofluids. Of course, imaging was big already then, but um, developing fastly. Uh, so uh, I was thinking, uh, we started to discuss some collaborative projects, and then I was thinking that perhaps this could be my, my future field. And since then, I've been working with um, clinical neurochemistry, so that has been my subspeciality as a clinical chemist, and also done academic research here in Gothenburg and in other uh, places in the world, like London, and, and um, uh, where I also run the UK Dementia Research Institute Fluid Biomarker Lab. Very nice. So a lot of uh, wealth of experience here. So as, as full disclosure, I, I work for Henrik and uh, work a lot with Oscar as well. So 
this is if this was a political debate, it would be banned because it's going to be the most biased uh, <laughs> blood biomarker supporting podcast you'll hear, I think. But I think it's my role to play devil's advocate today. So I'm going to uh, put, pick holes in my own work and um, and uh, that won't be too hard, I'm sure. But I want to ask you, a uh, to be honest here, this is, this is an honesty question to start with. So let's go back 10 to 15 years ago and you're in conferences and me and other keen PhD students are showing this uh, explorative blood biomarker work using mass spectrometry and different things. And we, you know, we're coming up with these models where they say, could say it would work. Two, two uh, individuals that have mainly worked in CSF and, and PET imaging, let's say 10 years ago, did you really think that there would be a blood test for Alzheimer's disease to the level that we have you know, currently showing in our research today? Um, I, I can simply say it. I can just say no, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, we had done some work together with, with Kai and Henrik on plasma bit for 214. It didn't look too exciting, even though there was maybe some signal there. And um, of course, things could improve, but my gut feeling was very wrong. Uh, I thought that we would never get any blood test that could work to the same, at the same accuracy as CSF biomarkers. So that was what I was thinking 10 years ago. And do you agree, Henry? And I, I could also I could add that uh, I had such a big respect for the blood-brain barrier, and my view on the blood-brain barrier was that it was super tight, and I was thinking that uh, proteins would not uh, it would be there are too many steps between the brain tissue and, and the blood for for this to be successful. I must say I thought some of the I mean you presented some work, Nick, uh, on complement proteins in blood. And there, there were also genetic associations, for example, with complement factor age, uh, where there also seemed to be a biomarker, uh, protein concentration difference in blood. And those things, I was thinking that perhaps this could be meaningful in some way. But I, I thought that the relationship with brain tissue changes would be much looser than we now see with these novel tests that you, Nick and Oscar and uh, other people have developed. I, I, I am um, I'm actually quite, uh, I'm positively surprised that it works so well. Uh, and um, I also th actually think it's quite fascinating that, um, uh, that um, the small amounts of proteins released from neurons in the brain eventually can be measured in the relatively large blood, blood volume that uh, together with a lot of other proteins uh, that are in much, much higher abundance, uh, thinking about the plasma proteins. There were also some reproducible blood biomarker signals early on. For example, transthyretin came up over and over as slightly altered in Alzheimer's disease. It is an interesting protein from uh, an amyloidogenic perspective, but the, um, the, the differences were always a little bit um, small. And um, for me, it was easy to think that this is probably something systematic, uh, some systematic difference between people with dementia or, um, uh, well, a cognitive disorder, perhaps in a pre-dementia state, and, um, and the biomarker change, rather than a direct effect of the pathological um, processes in the brain parenchyma and, and, and the blood proteome. Uh, but again, that was wrong. Just like Oscar said, uh, this was, it turned out to be wrong. The A-beta story was interesting because A-beta was possible to measure with several immune assays, but when we tried to validate those assays in spike recovery experiments or when we checked for dilution linearity, it was quite clear that the assays didn't work that well, but they were the best we had. Uh, there were, the, despite recovery was lousy, uh, 
below 50% for some of the assays. And if you diluted the sample, the signal got higher and higher, which didn't make sense either, up to, up to, until, up to a certain amount of dilution. So, so there were many uh, warning signs that the, some, when we tried to measure tau and Ebita uh, neurofilament light with existing ELISAs and got some results, they were not very reliable until we got better assays that were more sensitive and more um, uh, and could measure these proteins without a lot of matrix effects from the blood proteome. And did you have this maybe this realization moment, this kind of where were you moment when you realized oh, this is going to work actually, I believe this now. Uh, was it with neurofilament light or was it the phosphatal data? Yeah, yeah. Or when did you? It was the neuro it was the neurofilament light data. That was such a fun project. We we um, uh, had uh, gotten in contact with Quanterix. Actually, Quanterix, uh, a guy called Dave Wilson, he emailed me and, and Kai. Uh, with, it was almost like a um, um, commercial email from Quanterix, a small startup company, and said that we have a, he said uh, we have a new technology uh, which um, allows for. Um, ultra-sensitive biomarker concentration measurements and we noticed that you work on brain diseases, you might be interested. And then he explained the SIMOA technology very briefly as a compartmentalized detection reaction based on the sandwich ELISA principle. And I was reading it and I was thinking that ah, I, I, I see how this could work. And then we said that let, let's try to do some pilot experiments. We started out with tau, total tau. and then Quanterix rapidly made a total tau assay that worked in acute uh, brain diseases. Uh, we started out with the most severe brain disease we could think about, and that was hypo hypoxic injury following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, where we thought that this would be a massive release. And it was in poor outcome patients, whereas good outcome patients released much less. So then it felt like this was working, but of course it was a bit extreme. But then we took... NFL antibodies together with human diagnostics and put them on to Samoa and it worked that, that project worked in-house here with the homebrew kit it took four weeks until we knew that this assay was working and such a fast um, it was uh, ama those weeks were amazing in the lab when a guy called Victor Lehman here did the experiments uh, and uh, could see that transferring the human diagnostics ELISA onto the single molecular array platform, achieving ultrasensitivity, would give a blood test with correlation with CSF for neurofilament light. But then I, I guess you, you must have had, both, both of you, Nick and Oscar, must have had uh, quite cool experiences with the Phosphatal um, project. Oscar, do you remember when you first saw the Phosphatal results in BioFinder for the first time, for instance? Yeah, I actually do. Um, so, um, because that was a, a very specific moment and it was actually like a revelation, to be honest. So I was actually at, in Stockholm to give a lecture and uh, you had like actually sitting next to me and I was just going to go up and give a talk and then Shirina Janelitze here in my group had uh, sent uh, rock curves uh, with a um, new Phosphatal 217 in, in BioFinder 2 and I just opened the file yeah, and, and looked at it and then I looked at it and then I looked at it. This is so great. AUC is well above 0.9 with a blood marker for detecting Alzheimer's I actually, I remember I showed it to you, and I just look at this, look at this, <laughs> and I just almost forgot yeah, yeah. I was going to give a talk um, five minutes later. So, I, yeah, I, I, that was actually one of those moments in my life that I even remember everything what was happening around me. So, um, yeah, it was very special. We, 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 had, we had something similar here in the lab. So Thomas Karikari developed the 181 assay here in our lab, and we measured the uh, triad cohort um, for our first paper. 
um, we were completely blinded. So we, when we sent the data away and then we had this phone call like two hours <laughs> later from Pedro Rosanetto in, in Canada, who is the leader of the cohort, saying, I'm out of a job because uh, he's a he's a imaging, uh, Tau imaging guy. So this looks fantastic. I'm out of a job. But <laughs> this looks amazing. So that was, when, oh, okay. So we didn't actually see any rockers. We just yeah, had this yeah, yeah. phone call from a panicked professor in Canada saying that he that he'd lost his job because there was such a good blood biomarker. <laughs> So, I mean, these are the early studies. So what we're talking about here is these 2020 papers. And there were a few earlier as well, which gave a hint that this was going to work. But there were uh, papers from the Biofinder study and here in Gothenburg and uh, over also in the US showing that this phosphatal marker was really specific if you had Alzheimer's disease pathology. Um, and I guess we've now moved on and there are many studies that are replicating these findings. And now we're you know, we're really talking about the details about these assays and, you know, there's some debate about which assay we should use and which context should we use them. But there are, there are different, different contexts. So Oscar, as, a, as a, someone that sees uh, patients on a more regular basis, how does now a blood test or a test for phosphatal, for instance, impact a, a clinical setting? Like a patient that comes to see you now, how do you see this happening in, in, in two years, two to three years time? Or are you doing it now, for instance? Hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, we're not yet doing it, uh, but actually we will start in two months um, doing it in a prospective uh, manner. Um, and what we first will do is in, in, the, in our memory clinic, that is a secondary memory clinic. Um, so still quite yeah, heterogeneous population. Uh, so the idea is to start doing this in, in, in all patients that come in, um, new patients from a primary care. Um, and initially we will actually continue doing several spinal fluid measurements on, on everyone as well. That's just a little bit to get a feeling for, for how, how well it works. But I hope that we quite quickly, at least within one year, can stop doing uh, CSF in the huge majority of individuals. So what I'm hoping for, depending on how accurate the, the test will, will show out to be, uh, this will be phosphatide 217, is that maybe those with very low uh, levels of uh, phosphatide in, in blood, they will be yeah, negative in the huge majority on CSF, so we don't need to do any CSF. And then we have those with very high levels, and hopefully they will be to a large degree also positive on, on CSF above maybe 90%. But then we will have people that are very close to the cutoff, maybe 10, 20, maybe 30% of, of the patients, where I still think that we will probably do cerebrospinal fluid measurements. This will still be, I guess, dependent on if there will be disease-modifying therapies uh, around, because then, of course, it's even more important to prove that the patient had amyloid pathology in, in the brain. So then we might be even more cautious and maybe do CSF still in everyone before we, we start such a treatment. Um, but I think we need to see uh, some of the new assays that have been developed for phosphatal show such high accuracy that maybe in the future we will not need to do that before starting a seismic therapy. I think that would be the dream and also will make it much easier for clinics that do not do lumbar puncture as uh, our clinics do. So that is my goal, uh, my, my dream, but also of course use in, in primary care. But um, that will take a little bit more time, I think. We need to evaluate it a little bit more closely. I don't know what you think, Henrik. Um, no, I agree with all what you said here, Oscar. We, uh, so I work in a clinical lab, and we in Sweden it's so fortunate because we we have the possibility of taking research grade assays, uh, 
and validate them for clinical use. We can do that as clinical chemists, and then we do it according to um, uh, standard operating procedures. And then we are, of course, also examined by accreditation bodies, since we, uh, one of uh, those bodies are called um, uh, is called Svedak. Uh, and then we sort of put our license to practice on the table. That's uh, that's sort of how it how it works. So we can, uh, but we have not yet, we are still uh, making up our minds exactly on what phosphotau form to go for in clinical practice. And in clinical practice, it's a little bit more complicated than uh, in research studies because uh, in clinical practice, you have to be able to run the assay week by week and maintain stability in your measurements in relation to the studies where you establish the reference limits and cut points and you do you monitor this with internal control samples uh, and there you can see if you start to drift a little bit but if the drift uh, needed for giving a systematic um, um, effect on the diagnostic accuracy if that drift is small if, if the difference between cases and controls for example is relatively small then it can be very tricky to maintain the assay in a good enough shape for clinical practice so we we have to look at the full change and we have to look at the analytical variation and we also have to look at biological factors and the variability of the, the biomarker and if I would like start to discuss these biomarkers from these aspects, biological variability is relatively low for phosphotau, super low for a day beta 4240 ratio. It's amazingly low for that ratio. And confounding factors seem to be a little bit lower, the influence of such factors on a beta 4240 than on phosphotau. But the difference between cases and controls, amyloid positive individuals and negative individuals for A-beta-4240 is really small compared with uh, phosphotau. So there are pros and cons with these markers, and most of the pros lean towards the phosphotau tests over A-beta-4240, but exactly which phosphotau form one should pick is still a little bit open, although phosphotau-217 often looks a little bit better than the other ones, but it is, it is a little bit harder to measure. So it's it's uh, that that is uh, sort of the clinical chemist's viewpoint on, on this issue. Um, so, uh, but we hope to be able to be up and running in clinical practice, in clinical laboratory practice during the spring, in parallel with the study Oscar mentioned. Also, to prepare, in this case, Sweden and neighboring countries, so we can also potentially help Northern Europe if needed for the advent of disease-modifying treatments. And there are many other groups that also work on this. So I think we will see a quite rapid development of these blood tests into clinical laboratory practice. And they are actually already up and running in some of the US labs. A neurofilament light we have done in clinical chemistry routine in our lab and in several European labs for more than two years now. So, so it's going fast. But um, of course, one needs to think about what these biomarker results mean and keep the mindset that the biochemical test in itself will never be diagnostic. It has to be interpreted with the clinical picture, with other examinations, and it will be exciting to be a memory clinic doctor in the future, I'm sure, because there will be even more interesting tests one can do on the patients, including um, uh, cognitive mm. tests and imaging and, and blood tests and when needed. I and I think that um, the the, uh, the the aspect about clinical routine and therapeutic trials, I think it's very translatable, but I also think for researchers that are listening here that maybe not in biomarker work, they can use these tests in their own research. You know, this is a cheap way to say that you're, uh, maybe it's a, 
an inflammation drug that you're studying or a different, uh, completely different profile um, that uh, you can use these blood tests to dichotomize patients in a cheap way that when you didn't have CSF and imaging, imaging biomarkers. Um, so I think this is a, a useful for uh, not only in clinics and therapeutic trials, but us as researchers to use these tests in our day-to-day -day research pattern. Um, I just want to go on, on to a point here about you, Oscar, um, Henrik, that you said about clinical symptoms. Now, I often try to communicate this in my, in my talks, that phosphorylated tau does not mean Alzheimer's disease dementia. It means Alzheimer's disease pathology. So I don't know, Oscar, if you want to explain what you think phosphorylated tau is reflecting on the bi biological level. Is it amyloid? Is it tau? Is it... I mean, I guess that you've done a lot of research to say that the the correlation, but with symptoms, is is quite weak. I would say it's not perfect. It it, it reflects more the biology that's going in the brain rather than the symptoms that someone uh, exhibits, for instance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, so to me, I, I guess uh, phosphatol is reflecting amyloid-induced um, uh, hyperphosphorylation or secretion of, of tau. So it's it's something very connected to that, the amyloid pathology in the brain, but still it's not just reflecting the amount of plaques because we still see not a perfect correlation either between the, the number of plaques and, and the phosphatau levels. Um, and it's slightly different with, between the different phosphatau species that we have looked into yet. You know? So some are definitely more associated with, with tau tangle load than others are. So I think we need to be a bit careful there not using just the word phosphatau, but actually, for example, 217 seems to be more related to, to tangle pathology maybe than 231, and maybe there are others like 205 and so on that are even more related to tangle pathology. So I think in the future we will know much more um, of, of that um, when it comes to that. But, but I also want really to reinforce what, what Henrik said, because as a clinician, We've been working with, with CSF in our clinic for maybe 20 years, and we always look at the results in the context of, of, of the symptomatology of, of, of each patient. So it's, it's not unrare, no? Uh, or it's not, it's not rare, I mean, that a patient with clear FDD, for example, also have some amyloid pathology in the brain. And when we have done a tau PET scan, for example, that is usually the negative, and we know that this individual have probably... Yeah, free R tau or TDP in the brain and also some amyloid, but it's not the amyloid causing the symptoms. So I really think that the clinicians still need to, to think about this and not just look at the test, just as Henrik said, because that will be important. Because removing, I guess, amyloid in the brain of a person with, with actually FTD pathology driving symptomatology will not be, be, be so, so helpful. Um, so there actually, there is maybe some role for still for tau pet imaging that is much more associated with the symptomatology of a patient. Not only the load, as you know, also the, the, the region where that, that tau is, if that fits very well with the symptomatology, you know it's Alzheimer's disease. Um, but I still hope that in the future we can solve that with more tau-tangle-related markers. So we can look at the, the level of these markers and say that this individual have a lot of tau in the brain, so it must be related to that patient's symptomatology. Um, so I think it's really very uh, clear to like we're not in, we're not invented something new here. Um, we should treat blood tests as we would do with CSF tests. It just means that we it's easier to get tests to more people. Essentially, is is what we're trying to communicate here. I think yes, but also still optimistic with all this new. Uh, tau uh, isoforms that you and others are, are now uh, as developing assays for that uh, might be more related to 
to the Tau Tango portfolio that when we normally measure in CSF, I think that could be helpful here actually. Um, so we do not need to do Tau PET imaging in these cases where we feel a bit more uncertain if AD pathology is actually driving the pathology or the, the symptomatology. I could also add that um, when we talk about the different phosphotau forms, um, again, clean, thinking about the clinical uh, laboratory practice situation, it's really nice when you are a clinical chemist and look at uh, data and the things do not really fit. It's good that there are other assays around because then I can call a colleague in another lab and ask them, to, could you help us doing a measurement with your assay on this particular sample where we are uncertain about uh, perhaps it's an unusually high level that pops up in a, an individual where it's unexpected somehow. Um, so th therefore, I again am very much uh, for this view that we work in this field uh, together, developing different assays that might give slightly different um, um, uh, associations with brain pathology in different disease stages, and uh, and uh, they could complement each other. And in CSF, we had, have had this fortune in the Alzheimer's diagnostics field to look at total tau, phosphor tau, A beta 42, and A beta 40, and particularly looking at A beta 42 40 ratio. And then this becomes a pattern. And if one biomarker is a little bit off, we would never draw any too co strong conclusions on that. If all three are positive, it really indicates that something is going on, um, although one can never exclude that this is preclinical Alzheimer's disease that, and that there is something else to, uh, that is causing the patient's symptoms. Uh, so, so this is, ex yeah, it sort of, um, it sort of reiterates what you just said here now that uh, the biomarkers have to be interpreted uh, humbly and as markers of brain changes, but not as markers that ex explain the whole situation for a patient. I'm also thinking about uh, the different uh, diagnostic modalities we have at hand with CSF and advanced imaging also. Uh, and uh, then I remind myself about, again, the hepatologist's view on liver disease. So perhaps a primary care physician notice says um, um, uh, liver enzymes that are a little bit up. They discuss alcohol, they discuss some other things, the, liver, the uh, enzymes are still abnormal and then eventually the patient is uh, referred for evaluation at a speciality clinic. And then the hepatologist has a host of different things he or she can do. And that spans from um, ultrasonography and uh, some different um, examinations of the biliary ducts. And then eventually uh, he or she might even do a liver biopsy and, uh, and look in the tissue. So, I mean, we have, uh, I, I really think we should have that mindset also for these new biomarkers and look at them as clinical chemistry tests for brain diseases with all the pros and cons that uh, or strengths and limitations that exist for these um, uh, biomarkers and when one compares the diagnostic performance of these biomarkers that we are discussing now with other clinical chemistry tests they are top tests they are really really good uh, the diagnostic performance of some of the kidney biomarkers we use uh, a lot or the again liver disease tests and uh, also some of the cardiac biomarkers are uh, they have similar AUCs as the ones we have now have at hand but one needs to um, keep um, always keep uh, uh, limitations and and so in mind thyroid hormones is the same also I'm, there, there we have really seen some analytical problems uh, throughout years and they have been solved more and more uh, but there are also 
effects of uh, general somatic disease on thyroid hormone levels that, and these could be regarded as confounders although it also could have to do with how the thyroid is regulating um, uh, uh, the metabolism in the body in general so, so it's there are lots of things to to consider and discover when we now go, go for more broad scale use of these biomarkers in contexts where we perhaps wouldn't have used them before also because they will be more easily accessible. This is where the primary care study will be super interesting, Oscar, when perhaps some individuals with relatively mild symptoms and a lot of other problems will be tested. Then that will, of course, challenge the biomarkers uh, the most. So, so let me ask this question. So this fits quite nicely into uh, this. We had a lot of questions, but this one stood out. This is uh, from Eddie Rocatti, and he is uh, doing research in Tasmania, by looks like it. Um, he wanted to ask a question about clinical cutoffs for blood biomarkers. So, so this is his question. Uh, will there be a one-size-fits-all cutoff for these tests? Um, there will be some, maybe things about round robins and certified reference materials. Henrik wants to maybe comment on about that. Will age, sex and genetic APOE tests have an influence on these results? Will they factor in at all? That was the second part. And the third part, would it be more useful to look at someone's intra-individual change as a marker rather than a cutoff for the whole population? So if someone increases by 20-30% over a year, would that be more useful or more interpretable than... Uh, so it, what, if, what if someone's baseline level phosphatase is, is different to someone else's? Uh, would the increase be more more useful? So there's three, I thought, really nice questions. I don't know who wants to start with yeah. this. <laughs> I can maybe just start quite briefly. <laughs> and you can yeah. fill in. Um, as a physician, now I'm not, so I'm not a chemist. So as a physician, I don't have a problem that there are different cutoffs for different tests, to be honest. Because there's so many different tests. And as a primary care physician, you will probably order, let's say, a phosphatase test maybe 10 times a year or something, and you will anyway not remember the cutoff. So as long as the laboratory provides uh, the cutoff to you, that would be fine. Henna can explain more if it's important for, from a chemist perspective to have the same cutoff, but from a physician, I don't really see that that is needed. Um, when it comes to adjustment for, for uh, sex and um, age and APOE, when it comes to phosphatase and AB2040, I don't see that either because they are so tightly associated with the AD pathology in the brain. And if you have a high performing test, I don't see why the cutoff should vary with, with these demographic variables. I think it would be the same cutoff independent of these. Of course, we have it's more common with AD pathology the older you are, and more common uh, if you have an APOE4 um, if you are an APOE4 carrier. But the cutoff should be the same uh, to me, um, so it shouldn't make a difference. The last with with um, change over time, I guess, is only interesting in those that have uh, values very close to the cutoff, or I guess just below the cutoff. Um, still, we know that these tests, a bit for two forty phosphatase, uh, at least with phosphatase we've been talking about today, change maybe ten years before clinical onset. So. If a, if a patient comes in and have symptoms, it should already be abnormal. Um, but still, if you have a test result close to the cutoff, I, as a physician, would probably ask a patient to come in three months later and I would take a new test and I would see, okay, is it now clearly elevated or, or not? But that's maybe more, more test retest variability, more than change over time, I guess. Um, it might be different, I guess, if we have a marker that is more tangle related that we assume is changing more during the symptomatic phase of the disease. And it might also be different if we are thinking about pre-symptomatic Alzheimer's disease, which is maybe not 
what we are thinking about use of now in clinical practice. No, I, I agree completely with everything you said here, Oscar. There is actually one example of a test where it really helped to sort of normalize for inter-individual differences in biomarker release, and that was CSFA beta 42. Uh, so, so once this was something that Piotr Levchuk in Erlangen talked about a lot uh, already in 2006, I think, and we were so tired of him talking about this ratio because it uh, it was um, so he really uh, advocated for the use of A-beta-42 over 40 compared with A-beta-42 alone. But then I felt it was a bit confusing because A-beta-40 was not not systematically changed in Alzheimer's disease. Um, But everything was explained when you put A-beta-42 concentrations on the y-axis and A-beta-40 on the x-axis because then you see that people with amyloid pathology, they have a different correlation between A-beta-42 and 40 uh, compared with people without. And that really made the separation between the groups much better. Uh, So when we started to use A-beta-42 over 40, we could normalize for this inter-individual difference. We still do not understand that inter-individual difference, why some are sort of low producers and some are high producers producers and those who are low producers, but amyloid negative, they are closer to the cut point for amyloid positivity. So they will more rapidly go below that cut point and become biomarker positive, positive, uh, CSF biomarker positive for amyloid. Uh, But then again, the ratio correct for this. For phosphotau, I I think we, uh, I, I also think that the disease association, at least in symptomatic disease, is so high that we won't need to do these things. Uh, there are some groups that speak for doing a type of ratio, which, for example, Randa Bateman's team in St. Louis with the occupancy ratio, a bit when when his team compares phosphorylated and non-phosphorylated fo- uh, fragments of tau. And it's really interesting and it might be uh, good, but in blood there is always a risk that one starts to measure peripheral big tau also with that approach. Uh, But I I think we should keep an open mind and see what eventually turns out to be the best. Uh, Change over time, uh, I I, I like it a lot from this perspective. If if I know that I have family, uh, uh, that I have Alzheimer's disease in my family and would go and check my biomarker levels every second year at my uh, GP's office, uh, of course, it would be quite cool if we could define a clinically relevant delta change where one could consider start of treatment and that that delta change could be uh, that, that that delta change in itself might not have to be related to um, a cut off uh, for diagnostic positivity sort of but I think the studies that are planned now, both in your place, Oscar, and in, in some US centers, will reveal if this will be possible or not, or a viable, or viable, but a clinically meaningful way forward also. Um, it would put less pressure on us establishing good reference limits and cut points if this delta change could turn out to be uh, of value. And then if I should now I move towards back to the first question, if I should just address this thing with universal cutoffs, they are impossible without a really good reference standard. And this is really, again, core uh, 
standardization in clinical chemistry. So then one would have like the meter in Paris, one would have a defined set of samples stored at very nice conditions in multiple aliquots that would last over 10 years for um, kit vendors to, to be able to use them to calibrate their calibrators sort of. For example, a phosphotal 181 reference material. It could be a plasma with spiked in CSF or plasma with spiked in peptides that cover uh, the 181 phosphorylated site and, and um, uh, some other parts of tau so that the assay will work. Uh, they can be created in different ways. Um, it's quite a lot of job uh, or work behind these reference materials. You have to have a nice, a really good reference method to value assign the reference materials. Most likely the different phosphoforms will have to have phosphosite specific reference materials. So one could ask, is it worth the effort? And perhaps at least for now, it would be fine with laboratory specific, specific cut points. But then the laboratories, they have to establish their cut points. Um, in a good clinical material and if they can't and then maintain their measurement stability over time in relation to those experiments that's really important if the laboratory as such can't do that then the laboratory has to approach a companion laboratory that has such data and or collaborate of course and, and get access to samples through which they can validate their cut points uh, but they, they somehow uh, each laboratory then has to validate their level of measurement to be able to import reference limits and standards and that is a little bit that that can be hard work instead of having um, the possibility of relying on the clinical chemistry companies and reference materials and full standardization the advantage with full standardization of course is that one could compare results on a global scale and one could even do epidemiological studies around the globe and 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 look at prevalence of, of uh, phosphotau positivity uh, at the different continents, for example, and relate to uh, genotype information and uh, exposure data and uh, a lot of uh, interesting things. Uh, it's also easier to interpret clinical trials uh, if there had been fully standardized tests. Then one could directly compare the percent reduction of a certain anti-amyloid antibody with another anti-amyloid antibody. And, uh, so there are advantages with full standardization, that's for sure. But I still wonder if uh, if um, it would be worth the effort uh, now. I, what we need to do is to firstly finalize the standardization projects for uh, Total Tau and Phosphor Tau 181 for the CSF tests, the most available tests. But then I think uh, the International Federation of Clinical Chemistry and Laboratory Medicine might take on one or two Phosphor Tau markers, especially if the drugs become um, uh, available. Clinically. I think that we have very good assays in CSF and we all use different cutoffs, we all use different assays and I think the advantage of a course of CSF is they all work great. One of the maybe disadvantages of plasma is that we have quite a range of performances of phosphatau assays in blood. We've done some studies in Gothenburg in England, you've also done similar things showing that you know the the choice of assay that you use or the choice of biomarker you choose is very, very important here. Uh, our first generation assays were excellent in showing that this was a proof of principle, this is going to work, but our newer assays are the ones that are more likely to be in clinic, I think. And this is where I think that maybe not standardization, but at least a consensus in the biomarker field would be more useful to say, okay, well, these are the top assays that we recommend you to use in the, in the lab. 
um, because they give us the best diagnostic performance, I think would be most useful. We, we are running out of time, but I, I want to ask you these quick fire questions because I think some are interesting and I want to know some of the answers to these as well. So um, I, I scanned them. Uh, so <laughs> some of them are about science and some of them are not. So just sh short answers uh, for you both. Um, keep an open mind. <laughs> but the first one is an interesting one. So what what was your first paper that you published as a first author and what was it about? Okay, I can start. 1998, uh, it was about uh, transcription and regulation of uh, the Epstein-Barr virus uh, nuclear antigen 1 gene in lymphoma. And which journal was it in, Henrik? Journal of General Virology. Okay. Oscar? Yes, I, I think it was about excitotoxicity in a mouse model of Huntington's disease. Uh, I think it was published in 1999 in PNAS, if I'm not Ooh. mistaken. And this this is also a fun one. I think it's just I think well you're both music fans, so I think you both enjoy this. If you could join and play with a band on a song uh, in the song live on stage just once, which band would you be and which song would you pick? So you're allowed to join any band in history for one song. I know. Should I go? Yes, yes. Motorhead, Ace of Spades. Motorhead, Ace Motorhead. of Spades. Ace of Spades. Okay. For me, it would probably be um, Primer Scream, uh, maybe higher than the sun. Uh -huh. Very nice. Very good. Okay, and then the next next one. So if you weren't in science or medicine, where do you think you would have ended up? Not where you wanted to be, where do you think you would have ended up? <laughs> <laughs> oi, oi, oi. Yeah. I, I know I, I applied to um, uh, physics at the same time as med school, and I actually wanted to work with theoretical physics more than with, uh, med school. But since I was allowed into med school, I didn't want to lose the opportunity. So I, I guess physics somehow. And when I when I was a child, I wanted to be a, car, a garbage <laughs> truck driver. <laughs> There's still hope, Henrik. You can still you can still do it. <laughs> But I, I'm not sure, actually. I, I'm, I'm really green colorblind. I don't think I would qualify. Um, th this is a nice one. Uh, so uh, who is your scientific or academic idol, I guess? Who's, do you have one? Yeah, I have one. Georg Klein. George Klein. Georg Klein was called in Swedish. A professor of tumor biology at Karolinska who always wrote popular science essays in parallel with his work as a tumor bi bi biologist and immunologist. Uh, and uh, having a broad... Uh, he had such a broad and interesting view on science and society and his hardcore science, uh, the molecular biology was doing. I really, I actually, it, it, it plays a role in my choice of career because when I was 17, I got uh, one of his books from my father. He had heard him on the radio and if it, since it was a book gift from my father to a son, I, I didn't read it uh, first. <laughs> but eventually I read it and it's called The Atheist and the Holy City. It's a wonderful, wonderful book and it is translated to English also. So it's possible to find it if anyone is interested. Mm. I'm a bit unsure if I have one like research idol like that, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed by, by Colin Masters, for example, that he has done so beautiful work and still is fantastically sharp and uh, gives very good comments. So, yeah, very good. So uh, this is a very simple one. Do you have a favorite movie? Let's see here what the English name could be. I, I have a I really like a Finnish director. His name is. Um, it's, uh, they are actually uh, brothers, Mika and Aki Kaurismäki, and um, 
the the life of the bohemians it's it's uh, the name is in uh, the, the real name of the movie is in in french but uh, la vie bohemian or something like that it's uh, it's uh, the movie is um, uh, is uh, taking place to a large extent in in paris but they speak a lot of finnish in it and french broken french uh, with finnish uh, I think one can find it. It's one of the most beautiful movies I've seen in the whole of my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, to be honest, I have a very short memory. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I like a lot of movies, but I don't remember the titles. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so here's a very strategic question. Someone was very smart when they wrote this one. So they said, uh, when you're looking to get a new PhD student or a postdoc, what's the three characteristics which impress you the most? Someone's looking for a job here. <laughs> so any, any characteristics of a, a prospective employee that you look for in their CV or something like that? I, I can say one thing and then you can say, and again, so to me, the mo absolute most important is intrinsic motivation. So that I get a feeling that a person really loves this and really want to do it, not because of a career, but because of curiosity and, and, and so on. But that's to me the, the number one uh, most important thing. And I couldn't agree more. I was just about to say engagement or so, but that's the same thing you are thinking of, uh, Oscar, I think. So formal education, it doesn't really matter. I have to say that. Uh, of course, it's good if one knows something and comes with some knowledge to the team that we might need. But if someone is engaged and interested in gaining knowledge, then that is um, the most, most important thing one could think of and has this type of driving force towards that. Uh, it's it really can be um it, it yeah it, it that that's i think that's the only uh, real trait uh, that i feel i'm looking for uh, all the time it's um, but then of course it's important that also the person who comes uh, likes the, the place they are coming to i mean so that one gets this type of synergism and and, and their uh, the, the responsibility is on both sides um, somehow so it's um, uh, so I think if people are looking for a job, it's also a good idea to come and test to work in a place uh, b before um, um, making long-term commitments and so. Uh, and there are plenty of opportunities to do, to do that also in, by, by um, uh, smaller grounds and so. So it's, um, it's, it's, I think it's a relatively good time to look for jobs now in the Alzheimer research field, actually. And just a few more. So someone, someone's really interested to know how many emails you both get a day. <laughs> oh, yeah. are we in the hundreds or are we in the Actually, thousands just give us a ball but we are approaching the, the thousands now it's really I, I am above 500 emails per day and the spam filters work nowadays so, I mean it's emails that are of course they are not always something I need to act on but there are many emails but it has actually grown a lot the last two years for me. I don't know what it's like for you, Oscar. So if, if uh, I don't reply, send an email again <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or, or, or find my phone. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the yeah. final one, I think this is, uh, so as so this person says, as a, an inspiring uh, principal investigator, what's the biggest challenge of being the senior scientist in your lab? What, what is, what's the biggest challenge that you face as being a principal investigator? I guess to me, it's because I, I really want to work with science. I love supervision, discussing results with, with uh, PhD student postdocs and, and others in the lab. So that's what I w really want to spend my time on. 
But so my biggest challenge is to find enough time for that and keep that and not get too much dragged into administration or, or a lot of other things that is not directly related to research, because that is what I really love and I want to continue doing. I, my, my biggest struggle this autumn has been uh, that I've been absent too much and traveling too much. I have to cut down on that, I think. But this has been really fun also. But of course, this is not uh, fair to the people you work with closely. Uh, so it's um, I feel a bit bad about that uh, this uh, autumn, actually. Uh, but it will get better, I'm sure. <laughs> is, this, is this a public apology to me, Henrik? <laughs> 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 it's a big, big public apology to anyone okay. I've been working so, with. So I, I, we, I think we are running out of time, but I, I want there's two questions here that we're asked, and I want to ask them to you. Um, so let's let's try and keep them brief. But the first one is about other neurogenitive disorders. So uh, we haven't discussed it, but you know, our blood biomarkers they don't really work for other tauropathies or other neurogenitive disorders. They are specific for Alzheimer's pathologies. But have you seen any data or promising data published of any biomarker, whether it's imaging or CSF or skin, saliva, that may work for other tauopathies or other types of neurogenitive disorders? Is there anything promising out there that you've seen in conferences or data that you've seen? To me, I guess um, the alpha-synuclein, maybe not yet blood, I want to see that replicated a little bit more, <laughs> but skin has been shown several times now, um, which I think is very uh, encouraging, but also the blood, if that can be replicated, it would be, be fantastic. Um, I don't know, there have been some preliminary also with skin and immunistic chemistry and so on, I think for for other diseases, um, uh, so that could be maybe something. Um, yeah, I don't know what you think, Henrik. Um... I, I agree. Artequick for alpha-synuclein looks really promising. Uh, it's a difficult uh, test, of course, because when you, when you try to do it, you spike in recombinant protein that is prone to aggregate in itself, so it's uh, one could get false positives. But there are it's starting to look promising. TDP43 has one paper uh, where this has this basic technology also has been applied. Scialo et al. 2020 from in brain communications. I, I think there is hope for that. And some other research groups are trying to do this for different taupatis. Uh, and TMEM106B, this novel uh, proteinopathy that we know very little about, but seems very interesting. There, there might also be potential for uh, seeded amplification of uh, aggregates. And then we perhaps could figure out what is, um, uh, what is um, the, the clinical meaningfulness of those pathologies. Then I've been really impressed by beta-synuclein in blood, which Marcus Otto and his team uh, have developed. Um, I don't know if that will be in a, by any means disease-specific or so. It, it's way too early to say that. But um, but uh, uh, I really think one important topic for research for the future is to try to address the non-Alzheimer's uh, neurodegenerative dementias more from a um, fluid and imaging biomarker standpoint. Uh, because now, as you, you mentioned, Oscar, if one has a very low phosphotau uh, concentration but still have cognitive symptoms, then 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 one would need to think about these other uh, neurodegenerative diseases. And then, of course, it would be helpful if there were some positive tests for them as well. Of course, neurofilament light could pinpoint a neurodegenerative aspect, but um, not in a dis disease specific. So, so I think that um, people should not be discouraged if they're young and getting into the biomarker phase saying, oh, have I missed the... The biomarker boat i mean this is such a small aspect that we've been working on and alzheimer's alzheimer's disease can encompass so many different types of i mean we're just tackling amyloid and tau at the moment 
all the other types of proteinopathies and vascular dementia and uh, all this oh. there is a lot of uh, space to work on in terms of fluid and imaging and biomarkers and imagine all the non-neurodegenerative um, uh, synesthesis, the psychiatric diseases, and of course they will be very hard from a fluid biomarker standpoint, since there is no, uh, the, the pathologies are not uh, overt, but there must be a lot of interesting things in neurophysiology and imaging, and uh, perhaps also in fluid biomarkers for, for those. So uh, yeah, I would definitely be super uh, keen to get into this field also as of now. Okay, my final question, and uh, it's a long question, it definitely comes from a, a blood biomarker skeptic. Um, I won't, I won't um, list, but he, basically the question is, what is the biggest problem that we face getting a blood biomarker from where it is now as a, to a routine test in, in the clinic. He, he makes or she makes a lot of suggestions, but I won't mention them. Um, but how do you see it as people that work with it every day? What is the number one challenge outside of it proving itself as a diagnostic? Let's say it's, it works well. What's the, what's the biggest thing? Is it, uh, is it getting physicians to trust it and what it understands? Is it, you know, is it actually the logistics around getting the blood test into the clinic or something else? Yeah, so I guess briefly, I think in memory clinics that are used to using either PET or, or CSF, they already know how to interpret this type of, of results. So then I don't think it's education. Um, I've, I think it's more, like Henrik said, the standardization of tests that they actually work on a daily basis over time and that the cutoffs are, are stable. But we have seen that some assays actually fulfill that already now. So I'm, to be honest, very optimistic that, let's say, phosphatase, or certain phosphatase can be used in memory clinics very soon. In, in, in a reliable way. Uh, if you move out into the primary care, I think, yeah, besides how samples are shipped and so on, that can definitely be solved, it's probably education. So this is what we have, all of us know, now that phosphatase are changing five, 10 years before symptom onset, it's very important for them to know so they don't diagnose people just based on the phosphatase result, even though maybe the patient actually has depression now and might have symptomatic Alzheimer's 10 years from now. Uh, so I need to know about those things and how to use the test maybe mainly to refer people to to another instance like a memory clinic for, for further evaluation. So there, so it's different challenges, I guess, depending on where it will be used in, in, in the healthcare system. Um, and it might also be very different to different countries, of course. Yeah, and I agree with all you said, Oscar. And I was actually thinking about the last point you mentioned now, because for biotech companies and clinical chemistry diagnostic companies, they need, of course, to get some revenue. And then to be able to do that in the US, for example, they have a lot of regulatory hurdles to, to cross. Um, in Sweden, again, it's easier to set up uh, um, uh, also research use only test in clinical practice, uh, but then we do it not as a, the companies can't do it, but the clinical chemists can. Uh, in some other parts of Europe, it is like this as well, but some parts of Europe are much more US-like. And then we have, of course, all the other, uh, if you look into Asia and South America, and so there, there are also region-specific regulatory uh, hurdles to consider. And uh, that, I, I believe that could be a little bit problematic 
but with the advent of treatments, I think there will be uh, forces that are strong enough to push all this forward. So that the, because I'm convinced the tests and the biomarkers work, and that's such a good starting point. Uh, so I am actually also very positive. If I was very skeptical 10, 15 years ago to blood tests, I'm now much more positive, and I think that this will these developments will go rapidly, especially if we see additional approvals of um, disease modifying drugs. Great. So um, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. And um, if you want to know more about this topic, you can visit the Dementia Researcher website. You'll find the full transcript of the, the blog today and uh, the biographies on Henrik and Oscar and much more on the topic uh, generally from Dementia Researcher. Um, so I hope everyone has found this informative. I, I have, of course. And um, I really want to thank Henrik and Oscar for giving their time for us and explaining some complicated details in, in simple, simpler forms. Uh, and also, we now uh, know a little bit more that Henrik is wanting to be a, uh, a garbage truck driver. Oscar <laughs> wants to star, star as a part of Primal Screen. Um, so <laughs> we can mention that next time in our conferences when we meet together. So thanks for your time, uh, Henrik and Oscar, and, um, and everyone for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.